Fellas, what's going on? We are back with part two of my conversation with Clark. In this section, we go a lot deeper into the how-to of optimizing mineral balance and what you can do on a daily basis to avoid heavy metal toxicity and improve your overall mineral profile. As you guys know, this stuff is incredibly important. It's probably one of the most underlooked facets of health. So I'll get right into it. I hope you guys enjoy, and I will talk to you all soon. Godspeed. So yeah, what are you know some of the everyday, everyday things that people can do in terms of avoidance, and most importantly, optimizing their mineral balance even though that is nuanced uh just at a baseline without you know fully committing to doing the full panel analysis right so yeah the first thing that you want to do is do some sort of assessment of the metals in your environment uh locally so if you're in an urban environment things will be worse off than rural that's number one that just has to do with metal deposition into the air uh, from gasoline, from jet planes, lead is in the, the jet fuel still, um, and just urban environments are much more likely to be loaded with metals. So if you're suspecting that sort of problem, um, then you might want to consider maybe moving somewhere else. Uh, you know, uh, certainly like industrialized areas, like my parents are from like northern New Jersey, New York City area. And so those areas are historically known for uh, having like factories and all sorts of industrial processes going on in and around that area. So that's maybe the first thing that you can do. Just consider that as an option. Number two is going to be in, in your home and in your everyday life, trying to control for things that you're consuming and you're exposed to. So like processed food, cutting out most processed food, cutting out tap water, cosmetics, herbs, a lot of those things that we use in our everyday life are loaded with metals. Um, you know, like fish is loaded with mercury. All of the processed foods are loaded with nickel and aluminum. Um, the, the list really goes on, but removing cosmetic products, uh, most processed foods, um, you know, e even like small things like table salt or powdered foods are very high in aluminum. So dealing with all of those exposures that you have, um, in your day-to-day -day life is you really have to do that work if you want to deal with this problem. Um, but then also some other things that you can do, obviously optimizing your diet for nutrient density. So it, what gets lost in a lot of the diet wars out there in the alternative health space is, you know, um, when you cut out giant uh, groups of foods, you're cutting out a, a large, uh, potential source for different nutrients. So like vegans cut out meat and that is destructive in various ways because meat is a very good source of a lot of complementary nutrients that are in vegetables and vice versa. Carnivore isn't nearly as bad as veganism, in my opinion, obviously for, I mean, obvious reasons, but um, when you cut out plants, all plants, right? And you go carnivore, there are a lot of minerals in like vegetables as an example that you would not be getting um, you know, in your diet. So optimizing for nutrient density, not necessarily focusing in on, uh, you know, just, just meat or just plants or whatever, pro-metabolic or keto. There are actually decent aspects to all of these approaches, but the underlying idea of optimizing for nutrient density is not there in any of those approaches. So optimizing nutrient density, doing something like modified paleo with a lot of high quality uh, organic products, animal products, raw dairy, um, and, and veggies is very, very important. So that would be like another thing. So removing all those exposure vectors in your daily life, uh, optimizing for nutrient density, 
Um, and then there are like detoxification modalities that do work. Um, most of them are gimmicks, uh, quite frankly. Um, a lot of the zeolite products, the chelating agents, I'm not a big fan of. They don't recognize this idea of ionic mimicry. So when you use something like zeolite or chlorella or spirulina or even synthetic chelating agents, those agents are are designed to go into certain cellular compartments and maybe in extracellular spaces and bind to metals. But that approach doesn't recognize metals actually serving the purposes of the minerals. So if you're just ripping metals out through chelating agents, those metals are actually being keeping you alive at some some level. So that can be very destructive. But things like sauna are very, very good for uh, detoxification. But in my opinion, I think the use of a near-infrared sauna, uh, a la sauna space, is probably the best type of sauna on the market. And part of that has to do with how those 250-watt incandescent infrared heat lamps are you're getting like two huge uh, benefits from those types of saunas where not only are you getting the heat therapy from the mid and far infrared frequencies that are coming off those lamps, but you're getting the near infrared therapy as well, which is what all those LED panels are, uh, are out there. You know, so it's a combination modality, heat plus light frequency, um, and then sweating and the tissue penetration of the near infrared optimizes uh, mitochondrial function at a very deep level. So, um, you know, you don't have to go and get a sauna space sauna. They're pretty expensive and bougie. So I have, they a are of, nice. Though. They are very nice. And I actually know Brian, um, he, he started his company be off of plans on Dr. Wilson's website, who is the doctor that I trained with to do mineral balancing. Um, so there's sort of a lineage there and I, I definitely respect his company. Um, just a phenomenal company, uh, to be honest. So, um, that type of sauna is really good for people. Um, I'm trying to think what else other, other practices that might not seem, um, might not seem like they fit into the detoxification category, but, um, understanding that detoxification is a parasympathetic activity. So if you are chronically stressed or are there are, or there are things in your life that are causing stress financial difficulties, relationship problems, family problems, that will inhibit your body's ability to detoxify. So, you know, sometimes I have executives come to me and they're like, I'm working 80 hours a week. I'm like, well, best of luck to you. I don't think this program is for you, <laughs> you know? And so we might be able to prevent them from backsliding in certain ways using our protocols, the mineral balancing approach, but they're not gonna make progress. And that's just because at that fundamental level, if you're chronically in that sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system and chronically stressed, you will not uh, activate all those detoxification systems and programs that you need. So the conversation with respect to detoxification has to include, at least in part, you know, talking about parasympathetic versus sympathetic activation. Um, so anything that you can do to get yourself in the parasympathetic grounding, sun exposure, uh, you know, I have um, a lot of respect for people like Jack Cruz and those light water and magnetism people. Jack, I think, is brilliant um, and, and was really ahead of the curve, you know, talking about light and EMF, you know, maybe 15 years ago. So 
you know, getting in the sun is extremely parasympathetic. Uh, ultraviolet light stimulates vitamin D. Um, you know, vitamin D has this synergizing effect on many of the sedative minerals like zinc and calcium and magnesium. So um, that is a, a very uh, potent activator of the parasympathetic, but grounding is very good as well. Um, you know, things like massage and like reflexology, chiropractic work is very good. All of those things help people to get into the parasympathetic, uh, which, you know, aside from doing a full mineral balancing protocol, those are really uh, powerful modalities for helping you um, detox in some small measure. Man, yeah, I, I can't, you know, I think that's the most important thing out of everything we've discussed. And one of my biggest kind of realizations recently, I think it might have been you who I heard it from, but detox is a parasympathetic activity. And like, I look at my life and I'm like, man, I'm not spending that much time in, like, I'm in a parasympathetic state other than when I sleep. And I noticed that because like when I'm in a city and I'm in like the hustle and bustle, I can be doing everything right in terms of training and in diet and in overall lifestyle but the environment itself is just still stressful to me. And then I go to the beach and I'm letting loose. I'm having a few drinks. I'm having cheat meals and I feel healthier. I look healthier. And I think a lot of that does come down. First of all, like you're grounded and earthing and getting sun exposure 24 seven on the beach. But that's the biggest thing. Um, aside from just like going on activities, you know, like grounding, like getting sun exposure, massages, things like that. Has there been anything you've done with your clients to help induce that parasympathetic state or at least get them out of that sympathetic state more effectively? Yeah, um, there's a specific type of meditation exercise that's on Dr. Wilson's website that I think is quite unique and very, very powerful. Um, I've been doing it more recently myself. He calls it the pulling down meditation exercise. And it's where you're not like meditating like you normally would where um, you're just observing your thoughts or, or doing some sort of like transcendental meditation, focusing in on a point, you're actually moving, you're moving energy downwards with your mind. And so the flow, the subtle energetic flow of energy through the body, which is something that's recognized in like acupuncture and reflexology can play a huge role in the parasympathetic, parasympathetic and sympathetic activation of, of your brain. Um, and part of why a lot of these modalities are great at inducing the parasympathetic is because they're moving subtle energy downwards in your body. And I think maybe people might recognize this on a subconscious level, but when you get really stressed out, it almost, you can kind of feel energy moving upwards in your body. Or a lot of people talk to me about, um, having energy trapped in their head and they use exercise as a way to actually get out of their head and move energy into their body. This meditation exercise is designed to actually focus the mind to move energy down the body, which um, you're sort of doing it directly in this practice versus using like exercise or something else to do it in an indirect way. So this meditation exercise is really, really powerful, especially for people who are in uh, mineral patterns that we call like sympathetic dominance where we can identify certain patterns on the hair test that would indicate that you're in the sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system chronically. Um, this particular meditation exercise is really phenomenal for those people. Um, so that would be something else I would uh, definitely recommend people look into. Interesting, very interesting. I will make sure to link that in the show notes. I wanna go sure. back on something that you said that I've been personally 
very cautious about recently, hmm. exposure of heavy metals in herbs. Why, why is it? And in teas in particular as well. Why, why are those in particular susceptible? Is it the cultivation process? I know, I know curcumin is one of them that seems to have a proclivity for heavy metal uh, uh, accumulation, if that's what you want to call it. Right, right. So, yeah, there's a couple reasons why. Number one is that the herbs are grown on soils that are just metal toxic, right? Then if herbs are being grown in soils that phosphate fertilizers are being used on, that's another potential exposure vector because phosphate fertilizers are loaded with metals, in particular cadmium. And part of the reason for that is phosphate fertilizers come from phosphate rock that's mined deep within the earth. And in this processing of the phosphate rock, metals get sort of bound up with that phosphate rock when they go and mine for it. They don't filter the metals out when they, when they break it down and into those phosphate fertilizers. And so a lot of the phosphate fertilizers, which are the most common fertilizers used in the Western world, those are loaded with metals, cadmium in particular. So um, it's just by virtue of them being grown in certain soils. Um, but then like a lot of herbs grown in China and India are a lot worse, I would say, than in America. Um, just because those, those countries are loaded with metals a, a bit more, they don't have controls on their um, coal-fired power plants for filtering out metals that get used in the combustion processes over there. So there's a bigger risk from metals over in India and China, uh, but the type of fertilizers, just the fact that metals are just used so ubiquitously, we can't discount that fact. Um, they're just in the environment. And it sort of goes back to those principles I was talking about before. Industrialization really sustains the modern world, but it pollutes the ecosystem uh, to such a degree that it's it, we can't really escape it. You know, and yeah. I would say, like herbs efficacy maybe 100 years ago was much better because they weren't loaded with metals and you would get some benefit. But now that they're loaded with metals, it's like it's, it might be negating almost completely the benefits that people would have gotten before. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that's a recurring theme, right? You said the same thing with, you know, large fish as well. So yeah. with this knowledge that you have now, since, you know, you've committed yourself to um, ionomics as a whole, how has that changed your approach to diet? Do you have a blacklist of certain compounds and substances that you avoid? Yes. Um, you know, uh, we avoid uh, rice. We avoid uh, fish. Uh, most fish, not sardines, though, because they're smaller fish. I love to hear that. Thank God. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. You know, we can't, you know, DHA, going back to like Jack Cruz's work and uh, Bazan's work, who he cites quite a bit, uh, the Bazan effect you can't like discount the importance of DHA. Um, so you still need to get that from somewhere, but um, you know, obviously large fish, rice, we don't recommend most grains, like the non-gluten containing grains are still pretty decent. Um, but you know, vegetables at large, we do recommend. Um, but what's quite interesting is that we can make specific recommendations for macronutrient ratios based on hair mineral patterns. So actually you can use the hair test to flesh out why someone might do well on a keto approach versus why someone might do well on pro-metabolic. Interesting. Yeah. Is that because of certain mineral profiles that make them more, I guess in that case, uh, able to utilize glucose versus ketones? Exactly. So 
when you're what we call a fast oxidizer, where your stress hormones are chronically elevated, those people don't tolerate carbohydrates as well as fat. And that has to do with uh, like gluco, uh, not glu- <laughs> not glucose, uh, cortisol is a glucocorticoid hormone. And so it's also a stress hormone. So when it's chronically elevated, you will convert more of a percentage of the glucose that you're intaking into body fat than you would if it was lower. So if you have chronically elevated cortisol, uh, and we can actually represent that on the test by looking at the potassium level, because cortisol regulates potassium. If that is very elevated on a hair test, those people tend to do much better on high fat approaches. Interesting. That is, that's very, very interesting. And then my question was going to be, how can you determine what you, what you better utilize as fuel? For me, it was always looking at like, what do I feel better on? And I I know my brain feels better on ketones, but I noticed my body composition is significantly better on carbohydrate, like high carbohydrate diet, Mm -hmm. lower fat. So is that the primary thing you look at is like, what is your body's natural proclivity to store this energy as fat? That's part of it. But really what we look at when we assess the oxidation rate or metabolic rate is the relative balance of sodium and potassium versus calcium and magnesium. And that tells us whether someone's a fast oxidizer or a slow oxidizer, fast oxidizers do much better on fat. Slow oxidizers do much better on carbohydrates and protein. So Really, my uh, opinion on this is that people who do really well on keto and have there's an affinity or an attraction towards keto because they feel better generally on that approach, they tend to be fast oxidizers. Um, And the fat, this is sort of really interesting. The fat acts in in a way that that's sort of similar to alcohol, where they get converted to acetoacetate in the brain, which are these calming molecules And so fat actually blunts uh, the action of many of the stress hormones. And so this explains why certain people do better on keto. It also explains why certain people, when they're in a stressed out state, tend to emotional eat. Yeah. Emotionally eat. They go for these really rich foods and it kind of like calms them down. And you have to wonder, like, what is that? You know, that's so interesting because some people, when they have that stress response, they get this ravenous emotional eating and then other people, they lose appetite entirely. Is, yeah. is there a correlation there as well with mineral balance? I think there may be, um, you know, those people that don't eat when they get really stressed, that could also be um, a response to like, when you don't eat, you start to burn fat for fuel. That's what keto, that's what ketosis is, yeah. is you're converting fat on your person. And so that also could, I think, explain why certain people don't eat uh, when they get stressed out. Interesting. So going back to the diet, because that really intrigued me, you said you don't eat rice. And does that include white rice? Or are you talking about like wild rice and brown rice in particular? All of it, all of it. And so part of it has to do with um, a really interesting wrinkle in America, at least, is that a lot of the rice fields are... um, the rice is grown on top of old cotton fields in America, in California and in the Southern U S. And so a lot of those old cotton fields used to use an arsenic based pesticide to treat the cotton. So that's the actual reason why rice is contaminated in America. Interesting. Cause I always heard brown rice has a lot of arsenic, you know, 
that's yeah. an issue in and of itself. That's why. That's why. Wow. Yeah. That's part, you know, part of why, like, you know, a lot of people say that mercury is in the oceans and you, it sort of begs the question, like, why the fuck is mercury in the oceans? Yeah. How, did, how did mercury get into the oceans? Because it's bound up in the earth geogenically. So there might be some movement from volcanic activity that can contribute to that. But a large portion of that is mercury is used to burn coal in all of these coal-fired power plants. In America, there's controls on um, the, the uh, smokestacks, and specifically they use scrubbers to filter out the metals from being spewed into the atmosphere. That's not true in China and India. So, because China and India don't give a, you know, they don't give a fuck. Um, they're spewing mercury and aluminum out into the air. That mercury and aluminum and other metals is getting deposited uh, because of the form of the mercury is getting spewed into the air. It's elemental mercury. And then it gets rained down after it gets vaporized. It moves in the atmosphere and it rains down into the oceans. And what happens in the oceans, this is really interesting. Um, certain fungal microorganisms in the oceans can methylate that elemental mercury and change it into methyl mercury or organic mercury. And that's how mercury gets from the atmosphere into the oceans. Once those small uh, microorganisms methylate the mercury, then the small fish eat those fungal microorganisms. Medium-sized fish eat the small fish. Big fish eat the medium-sized fish. And humans eat the big fish. And the mercury moves up through the food chain through this process called biomagnification. Interesting. That's yeah. crazy. I remember you mentioning the conversion of methyl of, of elemental mercury into methylmercury. Yep. Now, what, what about other seafood? Uh, shrimp? Lobsters, oysters, are those of concern as well or not really because they're not that large? They don't bioaccumulate. Um, I think with the crustaceans, that could potentially be an issue. Um, you know, I, I tend to look at it like the oceans are so polluted that you really want to avoid mo most seafood, except for sardines. That's so crazy to think how big the ocean is and how polluted it is and how much of an effect it has on us. Now, then, you know, you mentioned rice is kind of off the table. Most grains are kind of off the table. And I would agree with that, too. Now, you know, there's another factor involved in terms of anti-nutrients like tannins, phytic acid and oxalates that may inhibit, you know, not only, you know, enzyme inhibitors that impede your like enzyme inhibitors, as well as just your body's ability to absorb those minerals by uh, binding to them in a sense. Is that a concern to you as well, or is that majoring in the minors? Um, that is a concern. Um, so for that reason, we don't really recommend like people eat beans and others with like high phytic acid content and lectins. Um, and those are particularly damaging to mineral absorption when they're not cooked. So part of the reason why we recommend cooked vegetables for a lot of our clients um, is that the cooking can inhibit to some degree those anti-nutrients. Mm -hmm. Also soaking them in specific ways like Weston Price, that foundation recommends is very good as well to help deal with that problem. But there's a, um, there's a lot of literature on the, the phytates and phytic acid, especially in vegan populations, inhibiting mineral absorption and zinc in particular. Yeah, I've, I've been looking into that as well and looking at like vegan deterioration 
and yeah. how much of those symptoms are correlated with these anti-nutrient profiles, particularly with the teeth. I didn't know how correlated tannins and phytic acid were with yeah. teeth and dental degradation. So yes. that's super interesting. You know, I, I definitely, I, like for me, pressure cooking has always been a big component. That's now, awesome. I, yeah, I assume that's not going to do much for the rice. So that's new news to me. What mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, like tubers and underground storage organs, like carrots, potatoes, um, I, I think like just intuitively those being underground with a propensity to absorb things from the soil, make it kind of concerning. Um, are those on a, like, I guess, risk list for you? Not really. Those like, especially the root veggies are so nutrient dense that any potential risk I think is uh, counterbalanced by how nutrient dense they are. So, gotcha. you know, we're recommending a lot of those, uh, foods for our clients, you know, carrots, onions, uh, rutabagas, those sorts of two and the tubers, it's, you know, those are nutrient dense. So, you know, they may not be perfect, but there has to be, you, you have to eat still. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And brassica vegetables as well. Are they in that same category? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're in that same category where they're so nutrient dense that, um, you know, and there's not a lot of sugar as well in a lot of these. So, I would think of sugar as sort of like an anti-nutrient. I know that would piss off some of the repeat people. <laughs> That's okay. I'm okay with uh, yeah. enraging some of the pro-metabolic community as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it costs your body nutrients to actually process sugar. So, you know, I think while repeat's contribution is uh, there's a lot of brilliant stuff there, they don't really consider that. Um, you know, so if you're coming from this place of being nutrient depleted for like decades, and you're like, well, you know, consume a high sugar diet and you're not really focused on nutrient density, that's going to, that'll make you more susceptible to metal toxicity at the same time, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, for me as like a personal anecdote, I spent a lot of time in like some pretty polluted environments, right? Southeast Asia in particular, Bangkok, really? Hanoi, Mexico City, yeah. you know, these, right. if you're like poster childs for uh, like toxic environments, but I really started to have this feeling of poor detox and depletion is the best way that I can explain it. When I went more, you know, just primal diet, as they call it, where it's just like carnivore and fruit because I was fixing my gut. Now, I do think it did have a benefit in fixing my gut, but I felt that when cutting out vegetables and looking at it, that seems like that may have played a pretty significant component considering the amount of sugar I was consuming and maybe the lack of nutrients I was getting from some vegetables. Yeah, could certainly play a role, and especially being in those urban environments, um, especially in some third world countries, they still use lead in the gasoline as an anti-knocking agent. So in America and like Australia and Canada, they took lead out of the gasoline in like the 70s and 80s, which was a benefit, but they use like a very toxic form of manganese in the Western world now. You know, so it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other, where it's sort of like pick your poison, you know, but definitely being in those more urban environments is a risk factor for metal toxicity. Uh, Yeah, I can imagine. And like looking back at pictures of when I got to Bangkok versus when I left Bangkok in a matter of five, six months, I looked so different. I looked I looked poisoned, you know, (laughs) I looked very toxic. And and looking back on it, I started connecting a lot of those dots. Now, in terms of, of herbs, it, like, you know, with, with the pesticides they have, like the dirty dozen list, is there a dirty dozen in terms of heavy metal accumulation when it comes to potential herbs or food in general, other than the big ones we mentioned, like fish and rice 
and uh, some grains and beans, well, beans for the phytic acid. So this is kind of an interesting wrinkle when it comes to like cannabis and uh, plants from that family. Certain plants are used in this process that we call phytoremediation, which is one of the ways that we can combat heavy metal bioaccumulation in the soil. Certain strains of certain plants bioaccumulate heavy metals more readily and do so in a more robust fashion, meaning they can accumulate metals from the soil without dying. And this makes them very useful to help remediate those metals in the soils. However, there are certain strains of like cannabis uh, plants that are phytoremediators and cannabis uh, manufacturers know this and they use these phytoremediation strains to increase the weight of their products. Uh, you know, it's sort of, it's fucked up, but um, so they're actually using those strains of plants intentionally um, because they know they accumulate metals more readily. That is crazy. That is so crazy to hear. I've heard of the uh, phytoremediation is what you call it? Yes, phytoremediation. I was reading something about them using green cabbage for a phytoremediation tool as well. Is, is that something to be concerned about? Um, the value in particular? I think kale is, is a bigger one, actually, um, for um, thallium. Um, I haven't heard about the green cabbage one, uh, to be quite honest with you. But I know like certain mustard seeds, mustard seeds, juniper, grains, um, and then a lot of the cannabis strains are specifically used for their propensity to you know, accumulate metals more readily. And so uh, that actually might be like a useful list to put together for people of herbs like a dirty dozen herbs that are phytoremediators that are being used out there. That would be a great list. And I think that would hit as an infographic. And know, honestly, right? I'm not that sad to hear about kale. That is yeah. very crazy and something that I think should be addressed more. Especially, yeah. I, I don't know what type of effect smoking versus consuming something is going to have on your accumulation of those heavy metals. But uh, it doesn't sound great to be combusting heavy metals and then inhaling them to your lungs. <laughs> you might be onto something there, yeah. Um, inhaling, uh, well, inhalation pathways is a major way that we, uh, absorb metals, you know, so. Oh yeah. I, from like the lead in the gasoline and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. The thing about, the thing about the lungs that's sort of interesting is that chelating agents do not penetrate into the lung and brain tissue. So if you're trying to chelate metals out from those places, it's not going to work. Um, but it's also sort of interesting, like cadmium and, and I think maybe lead uh, are resistant completely to chelating agents because of the proteins that they're bound to intracellularly. So this is what makes cadmium the most toxic metal is that it's resistant to chelating of any type. Interesting. And that's why it's extra detrimental that uh, all this new information about chocolate coming out being loaded with cadmium. I know. Okay, interesting. Now, now in terms of I guess, dislodging some of those heavy metals, especially in, you know, like brain tissue. Yes. How does one go about that if they can't use traditional chelating agents? Uh, mineral balancing. Mineral it's all balance. about mineral balancing. What, what mineral balancing is doing at the most foundational levels is, um, so we know that mineral, all these detoxification processes are mineral dependent. Metal binding proteins, antioxidant enzymes, and your hormones are all sort of mineral dependent. 
And so if we can optimize the balance of the minerals, we will automatically optimize the functioning of all of those components of your detoxification systems. And it's sort of like a reverse engineering of the bioaccumulation process that occurs in the first place because the metals are utilizing those mineral transporters and channels to get into the brain and in other cellular compartments. So it's really a reverse. That's the only way to do it. If you really want to get at metals, like in your bones, in your, uh, in your liver, in your kidneys, in your brain, in these tissues, uh, you know, that's really where they are. Um, they're lodged and each metal has like an affinity for, for specific tissues as well. Um, you know, so it gets really kind of deep and interesting in that regard. In terms of affinities for certain organs, which ones have you found to be the most neurotoxic? Uh, I believe you mentioned mercury and lead in particular. Probably the most neurotoxic. Um, it's hard to rank them, but I, I would say cadmium and lead are the most neurotoxic. Um, followed so chocolate by, is definitely no go. No. Chocolate's a no go. Um, you know, Cadmium, lead, if I had to rank it, then probably arsenic, arsenic and mercury, the next two. Aluminum is still very toxic. Um, like aluminum has an affinity for the lungs and brain. So uh, mercury has more of an affinity for the kidneys and brain. Um, lead has an affinity for the bones. And this usually has to do with the specific minerals that are being uh, substituted for. Um, like lead and calcium have this very easy substitution that occurs. And so calcium, most of your body's calcium is in your bones. So that's where lead preferentially deposits, but it will also go into the brain. Um, so, you know, the, there's levels to this, this approach and like understanding how the uh, toxicological mechanisms work. Yeah, no, it's, it's literally like the world's largest onion. Every time that I yeah. start peeling way it's just like oh no like, not not how it works and that's more I know, I, know, I know yeah so going back to chelating agents because i think that's you know if we want to talk about products that are really pushed for you know binding toxins we know that you know things like activated charcoal are good at binding toxins but maybe not so good for binding heavy metals the right way and yeah. i know as we've mentioned before you know activated charcoal is really good at, at absorbing nutrients as well so right. you know does that play a role in the detox process at all? Or is it, you know, just maybe a smaller role, a very specific role? You, you might be able, like, uh, one thing that um, there is, like, efficacy and some benefit to would be, like, modified citrus pectin or charcoal. They will bind metals that are already in the gut. Okay. So they're not going to bind metals that are in your tissues, like, distributed through your body. Mm -hmm. So maybe understanding the limitations and some of the benefits is, is very good. Uh, you know, but the problem with other chelating agents, either synthetics or natural chelating agents is that, um, they bind your minerals as well. So like EDTA, DMSO, uh, DMSA, they have the potential to bind metals, but they're also binding your essential elements. So if the metals are bioaccumulating in the first place because of mineral imbalances and deficiencies, you're making that situation potentially worse by using the synthetic chel chelating agents, especially. Gotcha. So, but also with chelating agents, they're really only useful for when the metals are in between the extracellular space and the intracellular space. So if you have metals that are in your blood and sort of 
ready to be redistributed through your body or ready to be excreted, this would be more the case in like acute exposures. So if you were to take those chelating agents uh, for that purpose, you know, if you're acutely exposed to mercury or lead or whatever occupationally, that might actually be a, a, a good uh, reason to use those agents. But for chronic long-term exposure, they're very, very poor and they come with some pretty uh, heavy risks. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's been my approach with activated charcoal in particular, where it's like, listen, I know this isn't going to do much. And I know if I take it with any other substance that I'm taking, it's probably going to absorb that as well. But exactly. like when I am somewhere and I say I have some like really nasty street food, and I'm like, there's probably some nasty <laughs> stuff in that. You know, that, that's when I'll take it. But in terms of, you know, something you mentioned about, you know, being in between that intracellular and extracellular space in terms of toxins like your and like being in your blood, Mm -hmm. um, something that has gotten a lot of hype recently and that I'm personally a fan of is the niacin sauna, where you Mm -hmm. take a bunch of flush niacin, you know, maybe that has a capability or what we've been told of like pulling some toxins out of your tissues and circulating it into your bloodstream. And then after that, using a binder like activated charcoal, does that have any efficacy? Does that hold any weight? Or do you think that's a little bit fluffed up? I think it's a little fluffed up. I think there might be some small benefit. Um, But again, it's sort of disregarding this principle of how the metals got there in the first place. So when you replace the minerals in an attempt to displace the metals, which use those mineral uh, channels to gain access to cells in the first place, if you sort of disregard that, you're going to have a hard time uh, really dislodging uh, metals that are that are in deep within your tissues. But um, there might be some small benefit. So, you know, I don't want to totally shit on everything, <laughs> um, you know, just mineral balancing. But I, I really believe in this approach and have seen, you know, in myself and in hundreds of clients now that I've worked with, um, this approach works beautifully. That's awesome to hear. You know, I I think, you know, that the scary thing for me, it's like, man, you know, all this stuff doesn't work. It's all just too complicated. You peel back one layer, there's seven more layers. But understanding at a base fundamental level, like rebalancing those minerals does seem to be key. Now, one last question in terms of rebalancing minerals. Yeah. Big trending product right now. You know, I am a fan of products. I think they're interesting and they tell stories, but trace minerals are a big one. And we know there are some issues with the sourcing of trace minerals. But that idea as a whole of just, you know, remineralizing your water with a basic compound of, you know, some of the macro and micro trace minerals, is that effective? Is that something that people should be doing as routine? I, I think it's okay, but people are, are getting a little delusional about how potent these things are. So obviously you want some minimal threshold of intake of the minerals. What we're talking about with mineral balancing is using specific doses of minerals in specific ratios, usually in physiologic doses, like higher doses, to, with the understanding of how they interact, to balance the entire mineral system all at one time over the course of three to four months at a time. And we keep balancing and balancing and balancing in three to four month intervals using like these physiologic doses, higher doses, and with the understanding of the interactions. When you're just taking a trace mineral supplement that's kind of the same in perpetuity at some low level, you'll prevent maybe overt deficiency states. But mineral balancing is really more about achieving optimal than it is just preventing deficiency disease states. 
uh, understood completely. Very similar with other deficiencies uh, like water and fat soluble vitamins. Sometimes yeah. like if you're deficient in vitamin C, having an emergency every day is not enough. You need intravenous targeted right. approach. So that's interesting. You know, I think at the end of the day, it, it is like the reason I'm so interested in this space is because it's so there's so much uncertainty, right? Like I just you never know if you're doing the right thing. Right. But, you know, I think your approach that you're taking does give a sense of empowerment, I would say, where there is something that you can do and there is an approach that you can take yeah. to solve this issue, which, you know, really has the potential to change lives. And it's something that I'm absolutely fascinated in. So, Clark, man, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. You know, yeah. we're going to cut this up into two episodes because it's been such great information and have part one and part two. Where can people find your work? Where are you most prolific? Um, a couple different places. Um, I would say Instagram, number one. Um, and my handle there is at nutritional, all lowercase, underscore analytics. Um, that's the, the best place to find me on social media. I've got a website. Um, www.nutritionalanalytics.com. That's another great place. Uh, you can sign up to work with me directly on the website. Um, on social media, if you want to learn more about this approach, you know, uh, Instagram specifically, not only do I have, you know, two or three years worth of posts that you can all just access right there, but we have a lot of different highlights showing client case studies of people eliminating their heavy metals uh, with a first initial hair analysis and their second and third hair analysis. You know, so we have the case studies, lots of testimonials on the, um, on the Instagram pages also. So plus there's a link tree in the Instagram profile. I've been on other podcasts recently, so people can check out, um, you know, those as well. Yeah. Your Instagram stories have been particularly interesting seeing that process working with your clients. So I love yeah. all the stuff you post on there. Uh, you're definitely changing the way I look at a lot of this. And I highly recommend everybody check out his uh, podcast, which is how I got interviewed or introduced to him with Wendy Myers of Myers Detox. It was an incredible masterclass of a lot of the stuff that we talked about, but a lot more as well. So Clark, once again, thank you so much for coming 